Today's scripture reading is from Psalm 16. Keep me safe, my God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my God. Apart from you, I have no good thing. I say of the holy people who are in the land, they are the noble ones in whom is all my delight. Those who run after other gods will suffer more and more. I will not pour out libations of blood to such gods or take up their names on my lips. Lord, you alone are my portion and my cup. You make my lot secure. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Surely I have a delightful inheritance. I will praise the Lord who counsels me. Even at night, my heart instructs me. I keep my eyes always on the Lord. With him at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest secure because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead, nor will you let your faithful ones see decay. You make known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Let's pray briefly together. Father, we thank you for your word, and we want to meet you in your word today. So we pray that through your Holy Spirit that would happen. Amen. There's a, there's a measuring tool that the United Nations uses to assess the average level of contentedness that the people of a given society enjoy compared with people in other parts of the world. They call this tool the happiness index. I guess it's a survey that asks people how happy they are. And so every year the UN publishes a list of the happiest nations in the world. Now, here in the United States, we, we live in what is arguably the most affluent society in the history of the planet. And we have the strongest military in the world keeping us safe from attack by foreign powers. And we enjoy political freedoms that people in other parts of the world, they only dream of being as free as we are. So if there's going to be a list of the happiest nations in the world, you would think that we should be at the top of that list, right? But we're not. We're not even in the top 10. In fact, this last year, we barely made it into the top 20, which um, many people find this baffling. Why are we not happier? Um, so, for example, if you live in Israel, whether you're Jewish or Palestinian, if you live in Israel, you live in constant fear of violence all the time. Why are the people of Israel happier than we are? Hmm? And uh, in, in Costa Rica, the average income is less than one-third what ours is. Why are the Costa Ricans happier than we are? It's, just, it's, it's baffling. So apparently, happiness is not as simple as we might think it is. Being, true contentment, inner satisfaction, apparently these are not easy things to understand. And this is why Psalm 16 is important for us. Psalm, Psalm 16 is a song was written by King David. It was, it was written for us. It was written for all of God's people to sing together, to learn from. And this is a psalm 
that explains to us how to be truly content, truly happy in God. Now, as we look at the psalm, I just, I really have two points I want to make. First, I want to talk about why, why true contentment is so hard to find, okay? And then secondly, where true contentment can always be found, why it's, why it's hard to feel happy and, and where we can find this. So why, why is it hard to be content? A lot of us struggle with this. We all struggle with this. Well, this, this psalm points to two situations in life where contentment can just be elusive. It can, it can be difficult. And, and the one is when there are just too many options to choose from. Um, you'll, you'll notice verse 4 mentions other gods, those who run after other gods. And this, this reference to other gods reminds us that in ancient Israel, there were many, many deities in, the, in their world that people could choose to follow. So just to name a few from the Bible, there was Chemosh, god of the Moabites. There was Dagon, god of the Philistines. There was Ashima, god of the Syrians. There was Baal and Asherah. Those were Canaanite gods. There was the sun god of Egypt. There was the moon goddess of Mesopotamia. And, and the list goes on and on, right? So this, is, this was their world. Even if an ancient Hebrew man or an ancient Hebrew woman chose to serve Yahweh, the God of Israel, even if they chose to serve this wonderful God who had redeemed them from slavery, even if they chose to serve Yahweh, there would always be in the back of the, their minds this nagging thought, maybe I would be happier with another God. In other words, the fact that there were all these options made it, made it so that even if they made the right choice, there were always other choices that now they could not make. It just made contentment difficult. And we experience this when we go shopping for shoes, right? When you, if you ever go, like, you know you need a new pair of shoes, you save up your money, you go to a shoe store, and it's a wonderful feeling because you walk in and there's all these different kinds of shoes. There's black ones, brown ones, blue ones, red ones, different styles, and you get to try them on, and it's so fun to think about which will be the shoe that I will choose, and finally you make your selection, you make your purchase, you go home, you're very happy, you try on your shoes, and what's the first thought that comes to mind? Maybe I should have got the brown ones. Why did I get black? Maybe I should have got Adidas. Why did I get Nike? You know, it's, they call that the buyer's remorse. In other words, listen, if there were only one kind of shoe in the world, you'd be happy to have shoes. But the fact that there's, there's all these options, it means as soon as you make a selection, there are dozens of other selections you will never be able to make. Now, sociologists refer to this phenomenon. A guy named Alvin Toffler coined, coined this phrase, it's called overchoice. We experience that in our culture. And it's defined this way. Overchoice is a cognitive process in which people have difficulty making a decision. Or I would add they feel un unhappy with making a decision when faced with many options. When there are many options, you're always aware that for every choice you make, there are now dozens of other choices you're not able to make. So this, this, is why, this is why some people are never happy in their jobs. Because whatever job you have, there are dozens of jobs you, now you can't have. And like, nuts, I knew I should have been a pharmacist. Why am I a school teacher? Or this is why some people, some people are never happy in their marriages. 
Maybe she's not the right one. Maybe he's not the right one. Maybe my true soulmate is still out there somewhere. Or this is why some Christians never just settle down and join a church. Because, you know, what if a better church comes along? Right? Or, or why some people can never just make a commitment to a relationship, settle down, get married, it, when there are just too many options. It's difficult, even if you have something good, to feel content. And you may have known people. David talks about those who run after all these other gods. Maybe you, you've known people, and, and when you get around them, it just feels like they're constantly running. They're running from this relationship to that relationship, from this job to that job, from this place to that place, just constantly overwhelmed by the, the wide array of choices that we have. And David says about them in verse 4, those who run after other gods will suffer more and more, meaning they, they will never, ever be happy. And we've all dealt with that. So this is one situation where it's hard to be content, where there's just too many options. Another situation where it's hard to be content is when there are too few options. You feel like you don't really have any choice. Verse 6 mentions boundary lines. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Surely I have a delightful inheritance. And you might be asking, what are these, what are these boundary lines? Well, if you remember when we studied the book of Joshua, when the Israelites came into Canaan, each tribe was assigned its region, its portion of land. And within each tribe, each family was assigned its portion of land. And whatever portion of land was assigned to your family, that would be your home for generations to come. You didn't, you didn't have the option of moving somewhere else. You didn't have the option of changing it. It was against the law in the Pentateuch to move the boundary stones. Like, don't mess with it. Leave it alone. Even, even monarchs, we read in, in, in first, first Kings, even the kings were called to be content with their ancestral lands. They were not to take lands from others. So what this meant, can you imagine living like this? What this meant in ancient Israel is, Whatever farm you were born on, that's the farm you would live on for the rest of your life. And whatever farm you lived on, that's the farm you would die on. And whatever farm you died on, that's the farm your children would inherit, and they would live there, and their children. And it's just like you did not get to choose. Wouldn't that be weird? Aren't you glad we don't have any boundary lines? Well, we, we do, right? Our life is different, but we still... Listen, there are things we don't get to choose. You... You did not get to choose when you would be born. You, you didn't get to choose where you would be born. You, you don't get to choose your race, your ethnicity, your gender, your family of origin. You don't, you don't get to choose your face, the, the, the features of your face. Are, are you beautiful? Are you, are you plain? You know, listen, whatever you are, you had no say in the matter, did you? We don't get to choose the, the basic size and shape of our bodies. They say that they can predict the adult height of an infant from the moment he or she is born. I mean, just, you, know, you don't get to choose that. And, and, all right, we can study, we can work, we can improve our, our abilities, but there are basic limits. There are basic abilities that you don't get to choose. You're just born with them. There are basic disabilities you don't get to choose. You're born with them, Right? There are some things you can do. There are some things maybe you'll never be able to do. Which is why if you think about it, isn't, isn't it one of the silliest things you can ever say to a child is, honey, you can be whatever you want to be. What a, what a burden to place on someone else. 
They're like, son, if you set your mind to it, you can do whatever you want to do. So if you don't make it to the NBA, it's your fault. <laughs> oh, but daddy, I'm only five foot five. No, but you have your, only yourself to blame for that. Like, what, it's just, it, it just crushes people when we live in denial of our boundaries. And what's strange, we, we live in a society, our culture says to us, you have the right to define yourself. You have the right to reinvent yourself. You have, you have the right to decide. You can decide who you are, what you will be. And that sounds so liberating. But it's actually crushing. It's enslaving. Because after you're done reinventing yourself, if you're still not happy with who you are, you now the only one you now can blame for it is you. You can't raise your fist to heaven. You have to look in the mirror. You have to shake your fist at yourself. It's just this... The denial of boundary lines leads to an enslavement of self-hatred. There, there's a, Ray LaMontagne, a musician, has a song called Hey, No Pressure. And, and these are, he, he points to this. He, here's the words to the song. He says, anything you want your life to mean, it can mean. Anything you want to be, you can be. Hey, no pressure. Well, it's a lot of pressure, isn't it? Why? Because... Um, whether we admit it or not, there are boundary lines. There, there are things that we don't get to choose. And for most of us, can I say for all of us, when, when, when we run into these boundaries, these lack of choice, it, it can very often make it just hard for us to feel content. And maybe that's something you're, you've been struggling with. A lot of people do. I, you know, we all do. For example, maybe you really don't like the way you look. You always feel bad about it. Or, may, or maybe, maybe you're not happy with who you are. You're often just fantasizing, what would it be like to be someone else? Or maybe, do, do you do this? Do you ever do this? I've done this. Do you ever just kind of, kind of always compare yourself to other people? How do I measure up? Why can't I be more like him? Why can't I be more like her? Listen, um, that's what boundary lines can do for us. Just makes it hard to feel happy with who we are and where we are. So contentment is not easy, is it? It's, it's, and, and these two situations, it's hard to be happy when you have too many options. It's hard to be happy when you have too few. So how can we find true happiness? That's my second point. Where do we find it, this true inner contentment? Well, I think that the pivotal word for understanding Psalm 16 is the first word of verse 9, the first word of verse 9 is therefore, right? Uh, therefore my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. And that word, the word therefore means because of what I just said, this is the reason why. That's what therefore means. Because of what I just said, this is the reason why my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. So you have to look at what David just said. What did, what did King David say in verse 8? Well, he said this. Verse 8 he said, I won the lottery, therefore my heart is glad, my tongue rejoices. No, he doesn't say that. He says, I got straight A's in school, therefore my heart is glad, my tongue rejoices. No, he says, I have the perfect physique. No, I have the perfect family, therefore my heart is glad. He doesn't say any of that. He doesn't even say, I'm the king, therefore my heart is glad. What does he say? Verse 8. He said, I keep my eyes always on Yahweh, I keep my eyes always on the Lord with him at my right hand. I will not be shaken. 
Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. Here, here's David's basic thought. I keep my eyes always on the Lord. Therefore, my heart is glad. Let me repeat that. I keep my eyes always on the Lord. Therefore, my heart is glad. I'll keep repeating this till someone says amen. I keep my eyes always on the Lord. Therefore, my heart is glad. Amen. All right, there's hope for us. That's good. Listen, that, that's what he's saying. He's saying, listen, according to this psalm, all right, where can true contentedness be found? It's not found in your circumstances. It's, it's not found in, in, in uh, the people around you. It's, it, it can be found in a vibrant, growing relationship with God, which is an amazing thought. This psalm is suggesting that, that there is a kind of happiness that God can give to you. The world can't give it to you. And the, listen, we used to sing this. The world didn't give it to me. The world can't take it away, right? It's, it's based on this relationship with God no matter what you're going through. David would say, if you keep your eyes always on the Lord, no matter what, your heart can be glad. So how do you do that? How do you keep your eyes always on the Lord? Well, if you, if you kind of scan through the psalm, the beginning part of the psalm, David is suggesting ways to do that. How, how do you keep your eyes on the Lord? For, well, for one thing, you trust the Lord to keep you safe. You trust the Lord to keep you safe. Verse, verse 1 says, Keep me safe, my God, for in you I take refuge. So you trust him. Another thing is that you recognize that God is really all you need. Verse, verse 2, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. Apart from you, I have no good thing. Another way to keep your eyes on the Lord is you, you begin to appreciate the people God has placed in your life. Verse, verse 3, David says, I, I say of the people, of the holy people who are in the land, not the people who are somewhere else, you know, I haven't met yet. No, the people in my life, I say of the holy people who are in the land, they are the noble ones in whom is all my delight. And then finally, David would suggest to keep your eyes on the Lord means that you worship God and you allow him to instruct you. Verse 7, I will praise the Lord who counsels me even at night my heart instructs me. So this is what it means to, to keep your eyes always on the Lord. This is the way that you live. You live a life where you're trusting him for your security. You're seeing that, recognizing he is all you need. You're grateful for the people and, 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 the, and the blessings he's brought into your life. And you worship him and you allow him to guide you. So, there you have it. If you uh, want true happiness, all you have to do is maintain a perfect relationship with God. Easy, right? Oh, no, it's not easy. You see, this is kind of the dilemma of Psalm 16. Even as Psalm 16 uh, gives us uh, a solution for our, our, our quest for happiness, at the same time, it raises this problem. It's, it's, it's suggesting that you'll find happiness if you, if you stay focused on God. But we, you ever struggle to stay focused on God? I mean, even King David, listen, King David is called a man after God's own heart. Even King David could not live up to what he himself wrote in this psalm. I mean, he says, I keep my eyes always on the Lord, right? But 
If you've read 2 Samuel, you'll know that there was this one evening when David took his eyes off the Lord, right? And he put his eyes on some other man's wife. So listen, even King David couldn't follow the prescription for happiness that he himself wrote in this psalm. He couldn't live up to it. So what are we to do? Well, later in the Bible, in Acts chapter 2, the Apostle Paul was giving a sermon. And Paul, uh, not Paul, Peter, the Apostle Peter was giving a sermon. And Peter quoted from Psalm 16. He, he, Peter focused on, on verse 10. He said, you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead, nor will you let your faithful one see decay. And Peter said, I know that's in the Bible, but it's not true. That's not true. He said David wrote that, that, but David died. David was buried. David's body de decayed. And then Peter said this, Acts chapter 2. He said, but David was a prophet. And David knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was to come, he, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah that the Messiah was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor, nor did his body see the decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. So essentially what Peter was saying, Peter was saying, Psalm 16, if you understand it, Peter said, Psalm 16, it's really about Jesus. Jesus is the one who kept his eyes always on the Lord. Jesus is the one who refused ever to run after other gods. Jesus is the one who delighted himself in God and in God's people. And Jesus is the one who was not abandoned to the realm of the, of the dead, whose body did not see the case. So Psalm 16 is really about Jesus. And you're saying, okay, then what does that mean for us? Well, listen, if, if true inner satisfaction, true contentment is, is found in a perfect relationship with God, and if, if a perfect relationship with God is something we just can't maintain, the only person who could do that in, is Jesus, then the good news is this. When you turn to Jesus in, in faith, the joy, the deep, deep joy that he received through his relationship with the Father. You know what he does? He shares that joy with you. In, in uh, John chapter 15, it's a teaching section. Christ was teaching his disciples. And as he's teaching them about the kingdom, he just kind of pauses, a little time out, John 15, verse 11, and he explains why he's teaching this. He says, I have told you this so that my joy may be in you. Not so that you'll crank up your own joy by trying to be a better person. No, no. He said, I I'm teaching you this so that my joy will be in you, and then your joy will be complete. So in other words, what Christ was saying, listen, if you will come to me and trust in me, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to take the joy that I have by virtue of my relationship with the Father because I keep my eyes always on him, and guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to share my joy with you. I'm going to give it to you. It's kind of like when you're a kid, you go to, you go to the playground, and there's your best friend sitting on the bench. He's got, a, he's got a can of Pringles, right? And you walk over to your friend, you sit down next to him, and, and what does your friend do? He says, you want some? I'll share with you. You want some? That's what Jesus does, guys. He's the only one who can live up to the demands of Psalm 16, the only one who can come to the Father and find this fullness of joy. And when you come to Jesus, he says, I'll share with you. 
You want some of my joy? I, I, will, I will give it to you. So this joy can be ours in Christ. Elizabeth Elliot was a, 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 a Christian author and speaker who in her life she went through some really times of deep discouragement and, and heartbreak. As a, as a young woman, she was a missionary and she faced times of danger and, 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 and hardship. She lost two husbands to death, one of whom was brutally murdered. Um, she mo wrote many books. One of the books she wrote, which is a, just a perfectly fine orthodox Christian book, there's nothing heretical about it, but she kind of pushed the way people think about God, and, and the reaction was just vicious. Christian leaders all over just attacked her, criticized her. She was disinvited from all these speaking engagements just because of this book, un, unfairly treated. And yet in, in the midst of all this, those who know her just said, this was, this was a genuinely happy woman. She just learned to be happy. And she said the secret, this was the quote in your bulletin, she said this, the secret is Christ in me, not me in a different set of circumstances. The, the secret for happiness is not trying to change, you know, who I am or how I look or where I live or what I do. It's, it's, it's found in, in knowing Jesus, this one who went into the Father's presence and found eternal pleasures without limit at his right hand and who shares this with me. So knowing Christ can give you this deep contentment. Now, you might want to ask me right now if you could, like, pull me aside. Pastor, are you really saying that if I just become a Christian, I will be automatically happy all the time? No, I'm not saying that because I'd be lying if I said that, right? Christians, we struggle with this. We struggle often with heartbreak or discouragement. Some will struggle with depression, often for physiological reasons. We, we, we go through hard times. Here, here's, I am not saying that if you come to Christ, you will be automatically, instantly permanently happy. I mean, listen, even the Apostle Paul, Philippians 4, said that he had to what? Learn the secret to being content. So he said, contentment is a secret. It's not readily apparent, and it's something you have to learn, all right? So contentment in, in Christ, happiness is not something that happens instantly. So what am I saying? My brother, my sister, I am not saying you can be perfectly happy or automatically happy, but I am saying this you can be a lot happier than you are right now because you have Jesus. This is yours. He wants to share joy with you. You can have much more joy than you have right now because you have Jesus. You can be much more deeply satisfied no matter what's going on because you have Jesus. 2 Peter 1 verse 3 says, God's divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. In other words, God has given you and Jesus is sharing with you the fullness of joy that is his at the Father's hand. So, the question is, do you want more of the joy of the Lord in your life? I'm not talking about being on autopilot, some kind of, you know, perfectly happy zombie. I'm not talking about that. I'm just asking, I mean this sincerely. Would you like a greater measure of Christ's joy in your life? Would you like a greater measure of his satisfaction? If, you, if, if your answer to that is yes, man, he loves you so much. He's offering that to you.
today. And so what I want to do in closing this, this talk, I just want to pray over you. All right? Any one of you here today, you're just longing for a deeper, a deeper sense of satisfaction, joy in Christ. I just want to pray that the Holy Spirit will do something in you right now that you'll receive this from Jesus. So would you guys join me in prayer? Father, we come to you humbly. We, we, we recognize that we often look to our circumstances to give us joy, and we're so frustrated because we don't find it there. But your word tells us that Jesus wants to share his joy with us. So I pray right now for ACC. I pray for my brothers and my sisters right here, and I pray for any today who are hungry for a greater measure of your joy. In the name of Jesus, Father, I pray that through the Holy Spirit, you would give this joy and satisfaction to them right now, that they would see it doesn't matter if, if all their dreams are coming true, that you are their God, you love them, you're with them. Give them contentment in Christ. In his name we pray, amen.